Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. I'm excited uh, for today's interview, but before, before we get there, I want to say thank you to our patron supporters because of your support. Uh, I get to produce uh, free material like this and uh, put it out there on the internet, and so um, I'm kind of having trouble hearing myself, so if there's anybody in the live chat that can uh, let me know if everything's working uh, properly or not, I'd appreciate that, otherwise I may have to do some uh, technical difficulty stuff anyway. Just wanted to put that out there real quick. But today I am going to be interviewing with, let me bring her in here, Laura Robinson. Welcome back to the show, Laura. I really appreciate you coming on. I hate it. Yeah. Third show. <laughs> yeah, third show. The The last two were very popular, so I'm expecting this one to go uh, along the, the similar lines. Uh, it looks like the audio and everything's uh, doing good, so I'll quit worrying about that. That was kind of in, been in the yeah. back of my mind this whole time. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited. Well, have... we'll be a Robinson show without technical difficulties, mm-hmm. as we've learned from Testament Review. Yeah, so. exactly. It wouldn't be the same without that. But it looks like things are going well. So yeah, I'm very excited Perfect. to uh, have you on. I do want to mention one more thing uh, before we get started. Uh, if you have a question for Laura, uh, you can submit it in the live chat. And be sure to tag at Help Me Believe at the beginning of your comment, and that kind of helps me see it. And of course, if you want to send in a super chat, I will address those first. Uh, but Laura, uh, I've had you on before, and uh, we've kind of discussed this topic, uh, kind of uh, ancillary or how, whatever the word is there. Uh, but one can say we've talked about it a lot, Hayden. Yeah, yeah <laughs> one, one could say that we have discussed the resurrection, but just really quick. There is still confusion. Yeah, there is still so. confusion. So uh, that that's part of what we want to do today. Is uh, Laura's been on the show before? And uh, after her first time on, then she started getting uh, invited to go on other channels, and she's she's become a YouTube sensation. She's uh, <laughs> quite popular these days, and for good reason. Um, and uh, but anyways, so she ends up on capturing Christianity, doing a discussion with Mike Lycona, um, and then there was some written and YouTube video responses to that discussion that we felt uh, quite misrepresented Laura in her position. And so we wanted to kind of do this to set the record straight, but also it should just be a, a fun interview in and of its own right. But real quickly, Laura, what, uh, or take as much time as you want, I guess. Uh, what were your thoughts about that discussion that you had with Mike Lycona? Oh, you know, um, I mean, my short answer is I thought I did well. But, uh... You did do well. You did do very well. I was, I was actually, um, uh, let's see. I was actually very impressed. I mean, I knew you would do well. I know that you know your stuff. Um, but I, just because Lycona, like this is his, this is his gig. You know, like uh, you know, talking about the historicity of the resurrection. I'm guessing isn't really your thing. You know, you went on. It is absolutely not. No, yeah. this is not something I specialize in. This is something that's kind of become Ian and I's bailiwick since we did that case for Christ show. But no, I mean, I never, it was the first time I met Mike. He's a nice person. Um, he, you know, he's easy to talk to. Um, it wasn't something I particularly wanted to do, to be totally honest. Um, I honestly kind of have a hard time saying no to something once I've indicated some kind of interest in something. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I tend to, which is basically how I ended up on your show in the first place. Yep. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> That's true. That's true. No offense taken. <laughs> and, you know, I, it wasn't something I particularly wanted to do, but I found, I, I saw an opening for me to talk about something that I think does matter, which is, you know, the question of why 
why should people be Christians? And what is and what does it even mean to be a Christian? Like, is a Christian someone who is convinced of a certain propositional idea, or is Christianity a lot more than that? And I saw an opening to talk about this, because I think that a lot of times the way that apologetics functions, um, through no fault of the character of the apologist, is that it very much affirms and pushes this narrative that being a Christian is basically initialing next to a series of propositional statements, you know, which is a very Western Protestant way of thinking about this. So you, if you think X, Y, Z, then you are a Christian. And I don't think it's a great, um, it's a great way to think about religion, uh, particularly Christianity, but just religion in general. And I also think it misrepresents the significance of what the resurrection was for the earliest Christians. I don't think the earliest Christians thought of this as a thumbs up, thumbs down proposition. I think they were thinking about this in terms of something that had a lot more of an obvious impact on their life on a day to day basis because of the insistence that you could relate to, uh, could relate to Jesus, that he was still alive. And, um, so one of the things that, it, you know, when I think about the, the interview and the way it goes, um, the, Part that gets quoted to me constantly from this uh, is the whole I'm coming at this from a historian versus Laura coming at this as a theologian idea. Um, and I bet, which is kind of funny because I've actually resisted the idea that my training's in theology repeatedly in public. It's not, my training is mostly in history. But I also think that it's not accurate to play those off against each other. So the idea that the resurrection was a thing that we can demonstrate happened in history with the tools of post-enlightenment historical uh, criticism, that's a, versus the resurrection is a thing that is apprehended by faith, that is apprehended in communities, and this was what early Christians were thinking about when they talked about it. That's neither... Those, one, the first one is not the first one is not history, and the second one is not theology. That is, this is theology informing history. How did the earliest Christians think about their theological doctrines? Well, like this is neither that you can't make a distinction between whether well, or not it's possibly theology. it's possibly historical theology. Exactly right, right, right. That's another great way to think about it. Is yeah. how did how did the church fathers think about mm -hmm. uh, that? So I I, I think that's. Um, I should have written some notes down for how I wanted to go through this. <laughs> no, you're good. I think of it, and then I think the other thing that makes these things kind of difficult is that um, it's very hard to talk about Christianity when there is not some kind of a shared context between two people to make sense of it, even if that context is just friendship and mutual trust. Um, because you know the reality is. The vast majority of people on the internet, in the audiences, in the comics section, are not your friends. <laughs> and, uh, a lot of people can't understand you, don't want to understand you, are very invested in having a specific kind of understanding of you. So I think one big reason why I like doing this kind of a show here with you is that there's a shared context here. So there's no necessity of somebody, and I, I would hope at least somebody watching this who's seen Hayden and has seen me on the other shows, no one's sitting here watching this trying to figure out 
if I'm really a Christian, mm-hmm. right? Or yeah. or nobody's sitting here trying to come back and like recreate possible reasons for why I might think what I'm thinking about. And, and, and what often inevitably happens in those situations is that people are putting their own worldview onto what you're doing. So one of the one cases we'll talk about today, which, uh, you know, particularly irritated me was this, there's this one blog, Christian defenders, don't look it up. Don't give them page hits. They're, they're idiots. Uh, had this very strong, uh, had this claim at the beginning of their article that I didn't take a strong stand on the resurrection because I didn't want to offend people, you know, like a liberal. And it's just, no, no, like you can't just put your own, you know, the way you've divided up the world into PC cucks and everybody else, you know, and just put that onto people. So I think one thing that's really important about having, you know, when you're producing content and collaborating, if there's not some kind of shared understanding here that like we both know we're Christians, the audience knows we're both Christians, we have a pre-existing relationship. If you don't have that, you kind of have to belabor points over and over again that people should be really able to pick up on the first go where they don't so that's anyways well if they if if they don't pick up on it i mean it's it's i mean let's be honest it's because they don't want to and people are people are trying to score points and they're not listening for comprehension so i'm going to write a written response to uh (laughs) that the article that you referenced i was going to wait until we did this uh, even though I, i already have it written uh, waiting to publish it. But one of the points that I'm going to make at the end, because I'm going to give some advice, is mm-hmm. read and listen for comprehension. Not for, yeah. don't just immediately start with, okay, I know I'm going to disagree with this. Uh, <laughs> so let me read with the intention of finding where I'm going to disagree or finding where the ill motive is coming in and try to. And that and that's an okay. Anyway, we could go on about that, but I better move no, on. To well, well, yeah. well. One of the things is like posh, um, pontificating about your, your interlocutor or your opponent. If you are finding yourself in a formal debate, or if you're doing a response, pontificating about the person's the other person's motivations and desires is yeah. wasted breath. Because if what you're looking for is, okay, what's true and what's not? In this case, the question would be, uh, is the resurrection something that we can get at historically or not? Uh, That would seem to be the subject matter. And then you're pontificating about uh, somebody's motivations and and their desires has nothing to do with that. It's completely irrational. So even on your own, you know, you know, these in the apologetic circles, you know, everybody wants to be rational and things like that. But that's completely irrational. It's completely irrational to pontificate, to continue that word, uh, about someone's motivations and desires. It's utterly useless. You're wasting your breath and wasting our time by doing it. And it just, yeah. it, it's just, it looks really bad. Yeah. The other thing is that, you know, a lot of times, and again, I think this is where shared content and listening for comprehension dovetail in really important ways. A lot of times, like, it's important to remember that, you know, the person who you're listening to is talking about the issue they're talking about. They're not talking about all the other issues. And if you don't understand what specific thing you're talking about, you're not going to get it. So the thing I love, it, you know, in, in, in watching people respond to this is, you know, people asking things like, oh, why doesn't she believe in a physical 
resurrection. Right. And I went and took me five <laughs> seconds. It took me five seconds to find Laura quote, say that she does believe the resurrection was, here's the quote I have it memorized now, physical in some sense. And so anyway, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but it drives me nuts. No, 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 I think it's, I think that's good. But again, you know, there's not, I, I think this what comes from having a lot of people who are more interested in figuring out ways to reply and defend a certain yeah. position than they are in understanding it. Because, you know, it's, not these issues aren't don't all just come in a braid together you know so you know talking about the physicality of the resurrection versus the non-physicality is not the same thing about talking the about the reliability of the empty tomb narrative versus the unreliability of it versus the historical provability or you know if you want to fudge on provability because that's everyone's favorite thing you know the historical like demonstrative like uh uh, the ability to demonstrate the historicity of the resurrection, you know, those are all separate issues and they have to be discussed separately and different data is relevant for each of those questions. So yeah. that's just my yeah. advice to people. And then yeah. there's one last thing on this point for me anyway, just so I can get everything <laughs> off my chest is um, even if you are uh, convinced, like uh, I have the truth. And so any, and perhaps you feel that way for, for good reason. It is possible to just be so convinced of something based on good evidence, good reason, things like that, that you already know that you have the truth. I'm trying to think of an example of a belief that I don't really hold tentatively. Okay, so I hold the belief that God exists very strongly. Um, I'm yeah. Somebody's going to bring an objection to that belief. I'm already pretty positive that they've made an error. That's just how I feel. Now I'm going to, but yeah. I'm still going, and this is where I'm getting at is I'm still going to listen for comprehension when they come to me because I cannot, you cannot respond or defend against that objection unless you first really understand it. Otherwise you're just, yeah. you're going to be defending against or responding to a caricature. And, and, and I guess this comes down to persuasion. If you really want to persuade somebody of your, because at the end of this article, Laura, that you referenced, I don't know if you read the whole thing or not, but at the end of it, at the end of it, at the end of it, the author who's unnamed um, expresses their desire oh. that you will honestly listen to the evidence that they have to offer. And all I could think was, why on earth would she want to listen to you? Because, I mean, yeah. you just blatantly lied. You misrepresented her entire position and, oh, yeah. and questioned her authenticity as a Christian. Why on earth? Why she... would I care what you think? Yeah. Why would I care what you think? Whereas, oh, I, you know, yeah. Whereas, you know, I um, yeah. I'm trying to think of a counterexample. So, the way that uh, you and I dialogue, uh, we clearly disagree on plenty of things. But, uh, you know, if you have an objection to some of my currently held beliefs, it's going to matter to me. I'm more likely to listen to you because we're friends, the mutual trust thing that you were mentioning earlier. Uh, anyway, yeah. it's pretty infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, honestly, if you were to, it, the, I think, <laughs> I keep thinking about, like, the creation of some kind of, like, public discourse 101 course, mm -hmm. you know, for podcasters, or, because I think that all this stuff is so important, that if you have not understood someone's position, 
it nothing else that comes next matters nothing that comes next matters if you cannot this is a mark goodacre quote that i absolutely love that when you are establishing somebody's position before you respond to it you are not done until your opponent can look at that and what you have described as their position and say yes that is exactly what i believe right and if you can't do that nothing else you've done matters. <laughs> yeah there are such you know and there there is such stupid humans out there who just don't grasp that that don't grasp that you have to be able to if you can't do that nothing else matters and the fact that you found a little audience of choir preachers who don't notice doesn't mean you're doing good argumentation so yeah that's a good point. <laughs> yeah it is it's one of the most frustrating things in the world um that's it's almost yeah. half the reason why i started this channel in the first place yeah was yeah. to have people on and just, you know, uh, listen to them and try, and I don't always exemplify this myself, but try to be a good example of someone who can listen and learn and things like that. But anyway, so let's get to some of the questions. Uh, I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not actually posing the questions in the, I just put a few comments in the chat that we were going to start up again in a second. All right. So, we have, we have started. Yeah. Oh, yay, good. Yay, we got that last bit of Laura. Yay. Okay, we're back. Yeah. Sorry, people. It wouldn't be Sorry, a show with, it wouldn't be a show with Laura Robinson if there weren't technical difficulties. <laughs> uh, hurricane, hurricane Laura came through here. Mess, messed up my Wi-Fi connection or something. Uh, so yeah. uh, we are back. Uh, let me know if there's any um, audio or video problems in the uh, live chat, anything like that. Uh, I forgot to yeah. check and make sure that the microphone is still, yeah, it looks like it's still good. Okay. okay, anyway, so let's get to some of these questions. The first one is, okay, do you believe that the resurrection was a historical event? One more time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so what is it? Resurrection. Yeah. Sorry? I was going to say, so what is it uh, then that you mean? Because I think the, the confusion, and there shouldn't be any confusion, but the confusion is that people are are hearing you say that you don't think the tools yeah. of history can get us to that conclusion, yeah. but that you still yeah. believe in the conclusion. So perhaps uh, drawing that out. Yeah. So here's, here's what I would say about the resurrection. I think the resurrection was a thing that happened to Jesus's body. So I don't mean that it was a metaphorical event that the apostles experienced I, I feel like there's a way of describing this that it sounds like you're trying to get it like a less real resurrection. I don't think it was a metaphor. I don't think it was a way of describing confidence in God. I don't think this was a thing that happened primarily internally in people's hearts. I think the resurrection of Jesus happened to Jesus's body physically. I don't know that I can describe the mechanism by which that happened. I think some people want to say more about this than the than New Testament tells us. Um, Whatever it was, it happened to Jesus' body. It changed it. And it changed, it's like Jesus' resurrection form is not completely analogous to the body that was left in the tomb. It has been transformed. It has different stuff. And it this is an event that is purely supernatural. It is an event for which uh, the moment of resurrection is not well attested in ancient literature because it was not a moment that was of primary interest to the authors. The author, the, the moments that they were interested in was the experience of Jesus appearing to them. So when I say that it is supernatural and the moment of the resurrection is not widely attested in the sources, what I mean is we cannot demonstrate 
using the tools of history, using the normal documents and the sources that we have, we cannot recover the moment of the resurrection the way we would recover something like the moment of the siege of Jerusalem. Like, we just don't have that level of documentation. And I also think this is by design, because I don't think the primary interest of the gospel writers or the New Testament writers is this murder mystery style way of thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, where we've got our sources and our evidence and we've got our witnesses. We're going to go and we're going to find out what really happened for ourselves. I think this is a way of doing history specifically about Jesus that treats Jesus as a lot deader than he really is. That uh, we have to go back and find this event that has been lost. And if we can turn determine that with some reasonable likelihood, then we can check this off again, initial next to this idea on our statement of faith, and then we are Christians. Mm-hmm. And that's not what—that's not how the early church thought about the resurrection. The resurrection, the payoff of it was that Jesus was alive, and that he was involved in the community, and that this is the moment that people were the most interested in in the early church: is Jesus appearing to people, or Jesus being present in in the community and bringing about transformation, like the, the transformation that is affected by his resurrection. That's the thing that's of significance to people, yeah. not the not the murder. So, yeah. So this wasn't in the original questions that I sent you, but since you said you didn't prepare for them anyway, I figured it'd be okay to ask. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote, yeah, <laughs> I read them, I promise. So it seems like you're drawing a distinction between, say, uh, like you said, the, like the very, the, the actual moment of Jesus being dead and then coming back to life. That event yeah. is not something... That event's not attested at all, I guess. Um, no, no one wrote about it. Yeah, yeah, but what you're saying is seems to be of more significance for both the gospel authors and Paul and just everybody in the New Testament is uh, the appearances of Jesus after his death. Yeah. And so yeah. perhaps you would you be willing to say that we have really good at or yeah really good attestation for Jesus's death? And how do you feel about the attestation to the appearances? The evidence for Jesus' death, I think, is probably about as sure as anything you're going to get in historical Jesus research. I think if there's one thing we know that happened to Jesus, for sure, it's the crucifixion. Uh, Because of multiple attestation, um, I think that's a very good thing to... um, I think that there's great evidence for that. I do think... I'm just going to take a little uh, pushback on Lycona here, uh, which I did in the interview. Um, I don't think uh i i don't know like Hunter really likes to spin the fact of the crucifixion as a piece of evidence for the resurrection that like everyone agrees the crucifixion happened and this is part of our minimal facts about the resurrection um no jesus is dead you know the the crucifixion it's, it's interesting that we have data for this but there's nothing about the crucifixion one way or another that points to a resurrection it's just this right. is what happened this died um where was I going with this? Um, oh, and, and then and then another thing we have excellent attestation of, again, as excellent as you're going to get when you're talking about something written about by peasants in the first century, is people continuously thinking that they saw Jesus or had some kind of experience of him in their communities. And this goes quite a bit beyond, you know, again, the sort of forensic style of evidence of people seeing Jesus who, you know, knew him in life. Well, no, like the Corinthians were 
interacting with Jesus. You know, this is in all the Corinthian correspondence. Gal the Galatians were interacting with Jesus. The experience of Jesus being involved in your communities was a huge part of how the early church operated. And again, it's this is not quite the same thing is saying like, you know, they saw Jesus buried and then they saw him alive again. And therefore the only possible conclusion was that his flesh had been resurrected. It's that there was this continuous experience in the church of people interacting with the resurrected Christ, spirit of Christ, whatever you want to describe that. Um, but again, I think that is, um, it's historical evidence for the way Christians thought about their faith. That's not the same thing as saying that it's historical evidence for the resurrection, because there's actually lots of reasons why people might have a uh, a vision of somebody, or there's lots of reasons why okay. people might have a supernatural experience. Yeah, so one of my, um, real quick, one of my follow-up questions was going to be along yeah. these lines, so let me uh, ask it, which was, um, okay, so you think there's good evidence to support the conclusion that Jesus was crucified? And there's good evidence to support the conclusion that people had experiences of Jesus uh, after his death. Yeah. And then, but then you would want to demarcate that or, or say something like, but that doesn't, uh, yeah. we can't say, okay, Jesus was crucified and people after his death had experiences of him, therefore resurrection. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that what we do have is evidence that people in churches were respond and people were forming communities around a shared experience of the of the resurrected Christ. Um the that is neutral on uh, that that is a neutral piece of data that, you know, we can't say anything about the whether or not they were correct or incorrect in that assumption. We can just observe as historians that people continuously felt this way. Mm -hmm. So, and then as a Christian, yeah. you would want to say that, uh, you've had these, you and other Christians today have the same experience. Um, yeah. Or have participated in communities of people that are informed by the reality of Christ that are informed by the living Jesus. Um, I think sometimes the way this can get understood is by, um, is is that I am reducing the experience of being a Christian to emotional spiritual experiences, and that's not really quite what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I think there's more than one way to interact with. The, I think there's more than one way to be participant in the in the community of the resurrected Jesus. Um, some people do have profound religious experiences. Some people have private religious experiences. Some people have community experiences. Some people participate in a community that is informed by Jesus in other ways. You know, um, I think that when we, when we think about the ways communities uh, and churches reflect the experience of Christ, a lot of this comes down to, uh, you know, there's more than one way to, there, there's more than one way to, um, to interact with the presence of God. I think service is part of it. I think community singing can be part of it. Preaching can be part of it. So I think every you have people participating in the work of Christ, in the work that is infused and enervated by the Holy Spirit, that is participation in Christ. That is participation in in Jesus' community. Um, so I don't think it's quite the same thing as hanging everything on mystical experiences. Uh, I think I, I think there's a, I think there's a lot more to the experiential side of being a Christian and the participation side of being a Christian. So. Mm -hmm. 
So what? Uh, one thing that um, people are going to ask and have asked is, uh, what about people who who don't have uh, this kind yeah. of experience? Um, yeah. Is there any, <laughs> is there any other way of, for them to yeah. become a or to is there any other way for them to know yeah. the 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 truths of Christianity? Yeah. Um. I think my response to that there there's two immediate tacks I would take on that based on whether you are somebody who wants to have religious experiences or someone who does not want to. Um, some people are perfectly content their entire lives to not have religious experiences. Um, and a lot of times this can include being part of a religious community. Like you are content to go to church, you are content to uh, be involved in the community, to participate in um, care, outreach, um, you know, uh, if, if your church does some sort of like community outreach, community service. Um, I think that if you are content to receive the traditions of Christianity and participate as a Christian without any kind of an experiential element, I think God is perfectly capable of meeting you where you are. You know, um, I mean, I think about my parents, you know, my parents are pretty relaxed, uh, you know, Indiana folk. I don't think they have a, terrible amount of interest in like charismatic activity. Uh, but I think God is perfectly capable of meeting you there. Now, the other side of this is people who want to have religious experiences, but don't. Um, and I, I think there's a few different ways I would respond to this. Um, one is that nobody, you know, we don't always know why some people have these experiences and some people don't, right? Like I'm not going to attach terms and conditions to these, you know, like, well, if you were doing X, then you would, or if you weren't doing Y, then you would. No, we don't, we don't really know why. Um, so I don't want to attribute it to faith, lack of faith, doubt, whatever like that. We don't always know why. Um, but I, I would say, I think there's just some general advice I would give people who are interested in having religious experiences. Um, one is to keep praying for it, keep seeking it. You know, I think this happens to a lot of people. A lot of people have a spiritual life that involves seeking out uh some kind of like greater uh interpersonal connection with god and then the longer they that when then by seeking it they do eventually find it um and the other thing i would say is go where jesus is you know <laughs> so where uh where do we find Jesus hanging out in the New Testament? Well, with the the lost and the least and the poor and the oppressed and people who need his care. So, you know, if you aren't doing something service oriented or, you know, if you're not interested in loving those kinds of people and providing genuine care for them, I'm not terribly surprised you haven't found Jesus. Um but I think if, you know, you know, so those are the two kinds of ways I'd break this down. So are you interested in having the experience? Are you not interested in having them? Or the third door is, are you interested in winning an argument? Maybe Christianity's not about winning arguments. You know, that's, <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't get to win this argument. And you know what? You're going to be okay. Yeah. So. so I'm thinking of the person in my mind. I'm thinking of the person who yeah. um, is a non-believer. Mm -hmm. and is thinking um i quite agree with laura that this is not i cannot reach the conclusion jesus rose from the dead through a historical argument um i would be quite content if something happened to me now in the present in the presence yeah present excuse me and uh of which i 
you know, some kind of experience that affirmed for me that in fact he had risen from the dead because, you know, either there he is or here is some effect that could only be caused by him. And therefore, I, you know, I, 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 I believe. Um, yeah. And so I'm thinking of somebody like that who has not had that experience. Um, and I don't know uh, if he, yeah, if if really the history of it has nothing to offer in favor of lending the conclusion, and they haven't had some kind of experience like that. Um, I don't know what else. So I, I think, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think the first thing I push back on is I don't think the idea that the resurrection as a moment in history cannot be repro like reproduced or proved or demonstrated with the tools of history. I don't know. This is the same thing as saying that history doesn't do work for Christians. Okay. Uh, because history is obviously a huge part of what we're doing as Christians. Like we are in we, we are people who have inherited a story and traditions and we're passing them down. So, you know, one thing I would say is, you know, maybe you can't use the tools of history to demonstrate that the resurrection happened, but you absolutely can use the tools of history to figure out how Paul thought about the resurrection and what made, what difference that made for his life. So I would say, you know, start there. If you want to understand the resurrection, maybe don't worry about the, up as much as much about the thumbs up, thumbs down on the evidence and start thinking about how these people in the first century, the first people who became convinced of this, how they thought about it. So, you know, maybe start, Study the role of the resurrection in the book of Matthew or discuss or study the role of the resurrection in the book of Luke or um I mean, the obvious one here is Paul, you know, is why, what is the resurrection? Why does it matter? And how does it work for him? And you might come to some level of connection with this story or some level of identification with it through that process that. I think is a lot more powerful than did the resurrection happen or did it not happen? Because, you know, of course, in that case, we still haven't even got to the question of why does it matter? Why do I care? But when you look at Paul's story, the why does it matter? Why do I care? was woven into his whole story and his whole theology of why this matters. So I, I would definitely turn you to history if you want to learn more about Christianity. It just depends what you're trying to do with it. Mm -hmm. So that. Okay, so I'm going to uh, ask one more question, then I'm going to start uh, looking through the comments. So if you, if, you have a, um, if you have a comment, be sure to submit it in the uh, – or a question, excuse me. If you have a question, be sure to submit it in the live chat. Be sure to uh, tag at Help Me Believe at the uh, beginning of your – before your question, and that will help me find it if you uh, want to give a super chat. Of course, I'll address those first. Uh, we're going to start going through those uh, pretty pretty soon, so be sure to submit your questions if you have any. Any and all questions for Laura are welcomed, so be sure to put those in there. Uh, Laura, one more question from me is, mm -hmm. do you think the resurrection was a physical or spiritual event? And uh, yeah, just uh, what are your thoughts on that dichotomy? So I'm very glad I, I'm, I'm very glad I actually read this question before. Before I answered it because I think I got very close to saying something stupid uh, but I thought about it and I was like wait hang on I got this one okay it's both of course it's both a physical only resurrection doesn't matter at all it just means you were dead and then you weren't dead no spiritual implications for this or why people should still be talking about it 2,000 years later I, I, I think that 
you know, when, when we look at Paul and we look at what Paul said about the resurrection and why it mattered, it did involve Jesus's body in some capacity. You know, he doesn't know the this whole story but he does know that involved jesus's flesh in this level of elevation and transformation that jesus's flesh became something very different and that the flesh of our bodies which is enslaved to sin and uh, subject to mortality that the good news of the resurrection is that one day it's going to go away so that is physical but of course it's spiritual of course it's spiritual to mean that you are resurrected in a way that you are uh freed from the enslaving power of sin and death of course that's spiritual so these things work together and again I think this is part of the issue with this like forensic style reading of the resurrection where we treat Jesus's body dead or not is this, you know, historical problem we need to solve. We miss all of this theological significance to it and why it matters and why it matters right now for us as people. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to talk about the spiritual side. And if we just talk about the physical side, we miss all of that. So yeah. that was a very, uh, Theological of you, Laura, but I was really looking for some kind of historical. Was it not historical? That would happen. <laughs> okay, look, uh, we got a question from uh, Metal Theologian. It says, uh, "What do you think of Pe What do you think of Peter Rollins?" Uh, I don't know who that is. Perhaps you do, Laura. I don't know who that is. Can I Google it? Um, you're, you're welcome to. But if you don't know who it is, I'm probably just going to move on to another question. Yeah. Uh, okay. Give me another. Okay, this one is uh, from uh, Nick Quint. Says, question, what does Laura, hi friend, think about the women uh, proclaiming the good news of the resurrection? How does our historical method impact women's gifts and calling in the church? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, again, the the story of the empty tomb, um, it's, it's very frustrating that that story is not in Paul and that Paul doesn't seem to know it in his litany of the people who had visions of Jesus. But I do think that it's, it's very important that Mark gives us this counter narrative to what happened in Paul, because in Paul, you know, the we have a series of witnesses of the resurrection and they're all dudes and they're all church leaders. And I think Mark provides a really fascinating counterpoint. What? I just, for the dudes, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Church leaders. Okay, I thought you were doing this, and I was like, okay. No. Um, but, <laughs> but I think that the fact that Mark um, foregrounds people who aren't famous, people who don't become authority figures in the church, I think this is very, um, I think this is very representative of Mark's larger theology. You know, Mark likes things that are ironic and are surprising and are not the way we would expect things to go about the Messiah. So I think the fact that Mark gives the res the this the first sight of the resurrection to three women who were following Jesus the whole time, you know, there, there's, there's two levels of what Mark tells us there. That's very important. Um, one is that Mark kind of reveals accidentally at the very end of the gospel, that there's been this group of women traveling around with Jesus the entire time. And they've always been part of this. You know, we've been hearing about the disciples, but since they all ran away scared, now we've just got the women. And because they stuck around, they're the ones who see the resurrection. So there's something very ironic here. Um, but I think that this is useful, you know, it, it's hard when you're talking about something for which you only have one theological source to talk about its historicity, like up or down. But I think we see a lot of what Mark is doing with that story in the way it works in his narrative, that Mark 
uh, likes ascribing power and significance and triumph to weak and despised things and people. So I think if we're talking about, you know, women preaching, I think the idea that women are uh, not supposed to be involved in preaching on some, based on some kind of idea of the weakness of women, you know, which I think is, it's gone the way of the dodo, but sort of a classic explanation for why women can't preach. Um, according to Mark, that's exactly why they should. So, you know, I think that's a, a little interesting irony, but, yeah. but th- th- thanks for the question, Nick. Yeah. This question comes from uh, the BDS, just some initials. It says, uh, are Christians committed to certainty? Or is the emphasis on having faith admitting that we don't have certainty? Yeah, I, I feel like certainty is a word with a lot of fudging involved, you know, because I think it's very common for people to, um, it's very common for people involved in apologetics, in my experience, to say that, of course, we can't prove things. Of course, we can't have certainty. But then the vigilance and the zealotry with which you pursue the apologetic progress sure seems like you're pursuing something that's a lot more valuable and it's a lot more useful for hanging your faith on than just probable cause right so i think i think this is also why i'm so skeptical of the apologetic uh, process is that it really that in that project because i think it promises a lot more uh, intentionally or not, implicitly or not, about what it can do uh, for your faith to preserve your faith than it actually can. Um, so I, I don't think... The, the other thing I, I want to push back on is the idea that certainty and faith are things that are in... Are, are on some kind of a competition with right. each other because yeah. faith is not something you believe, but you're not sure of. And where a certainty is, a, is the opposite. You know, faith is, faith is completely different from certainty or uncertainty. Faith is relationship is relational. Faith is, um, faith is trust. Faith is, uh, you know, Matthew Bates's word is allegiance. Faith is obedience. Uh, there's just, there's so much more involved in, faith in what it is that I don't think it's really useful to put it in conversation with certainty, you know, because like when I say that I have faith in God, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that I have no evidence there's a God there, but I'm just choosing to believe it because I got to have faith in something. It means that I have put my trust in God. It means I'm obeying God. It means I'm going where God wants me to go. That's what's included in faith. So I I, I like the term allegiance a lot. Yeah. 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 Matthew Bates has popularized that for sure. Yeah. Um, so this question comes from uh, Aaron Chitzmar, if I pronounce that correctly. Uh, it says, what distinguishes Christianity from other uh, religions? Why be a Christian rather than a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, etc.? I mean, it, it is, I can't tell you about not as opposed to being a muslim or a jew because i'm not any of those things um i have good muslim and jewish friends and i have a lot of admiration for a lot of aspects of their faith but all i can tell you is what i think is unique about christianity and why i think it's so special um i think the idea of a god becoming a person is tremendously powerful to me and it's tremendously beautiful i think there is something suggested there in god's solidarity with humanity and how much humanity matters to god that god would be willing to do that for us um so i think when i think about jesus and about god becoming a person i see assurance that god understands me 
um, that I can, if not understand everything about God, that I have some sort of access to him in a way that is intelligible to me through another human being rather than, uh, you know, this sort of like overwhelming nebulous concept. Um, I also see a God who I know is on my side, who is not opposed to me and a God who, um, who loves me in ways that can make that God uncomfortable. I think that's really remarkable. I think there is an assurance of God loving us in a very parental and protective and wonderful way in the incarnation story that I would miss if I were to become a different religion. I think I would miss that, but you know, but like I said, I'm not, I'm not a Muslim or a Jew, so I'm not going to put myself in some kind of positive conversation with them because they're not here to, talk back so i'm not going to make that move but um but that would be my answer so uh this question comes from david kim it says for laura any thoughts on why the actual event of the resurrection is never described in the gospels in other words (laughs) there's no mention of christ coming out of the tomb thoughts yeah yeah um i think there's some theologian i think it's jensen who says that the resurrection could not be described that it transcends a description in some way i can't remember john would know it um you know i i don't know i mean you know if i was um i mean i i think the obvious answer for why nobody saw it is that jesus died by all accounts, you know, Jesus, by virtue of being executed, died alone and his body was alone. So there was no one to be with Jesus' body to see a resurrection happen. Um, and I think that the fact that nobody is there, you know, again, I'm not trying to make a claim on its theological verifiability, but I think that one thing we see in that is the extent to which Jesus really was abandoned in the in the tremendous loss and sacrifice his death was um so i just think that's a that's an interesting part of it like you know the reality of it is is that if you're executed as a traitor in a really horrifying way and all your friends leave and your body is wrapped up and stuck in a corner and left alone no one's gonna see it come back (laughs) because no one's there for it so uh yeah i think that's what i would what what i would say so yeah since uh, since we couldn't answer a metal theologian's uh, prior question, I'll uh, allow him him or her a, a second question. It says, do you think there's anything to John Dominic Crossan's argument that the authentic Pauline epistles were egalitarian and that it was later writers who brought in the sexism? Yeah, it's. I mean, it depends what you want to do with Colossians and Ephesians, um, because there's definitely there's definitely a movement away from between um, uh, First Corinthians, for instance, and First Timothy. Those are two documents that take very different stands on the value of marriage, the uh, the role of widows. Um, what what women owe to men and vice versa. You know, First Corinthians seven has a very mutual uh, egalitarian description of marriage. Uh, one thing I do think is an, a fair question is how um, is how sexist First Timothy two is because you know you can definitely follow those the rules there you know you you can make them really sexist. I I think it's a fair question of how the of whether or not there is something 
localized in view happening there's I, to be clear i don't think paul wrote first timothy too uh but i think there's a fair question there of whether or not this is something particularly localized that the author is worried about um and i think that might push a little bit one way or another on whether or not it's sexist uh i think craig um uh craig um what's his Gosh darn, Keener, Keener. Keener has a really interesting read on that passage about what Adam and what Eve is doing in that mm-hmm. story. And he thinks that uh, First Timothy, I think Nick actually talked about this on your show. He I'm did. sure he did. He did. Just to yeah, refresh your memory, that the emphasis there is on learning, that there's a lack of information Eve had by virtue of coming along second. And analogously, there's a lack of information women in the church have by virtue of being women in the first century. And until they can get caught up, there is a level at which it is dangerous for them to take the reins. I think that's actually a perfectly good explanation of what's happening with the even the Eve imagery in uh, First Timothy two, um, and I also have a hard time saying that that is de facto sexist. Uh, but definitely by comparison with something like First Corinthians, of course it is. So you know that would be my yeah. my uh, answer. So let's do maybe one or, or two more. Yeah. Um, it says, uh, whoops. Where did I go? Okay. Uh, why is evangelizing and converting non-believers so crucial? Uh, is it the edict of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to save people from the Christian hell, uh, even though that's not what Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, or to help affirm confidence in Christian beliefs? Um, I mean, here is you know. <laughs> neither of us, it's... neither of us believe in eternal conscious torment, so the question right, is kind of missing right, the point, right, but yeah. Right. I mean, people get snarky as hell when you talk to, when you bring this up. But like, you know, I actually think the best reason to be a Christian doesn't have anything to do with the afterlife. I think the best reasons to be a Christian are all because on the assumption that I believe it's good to live in accordance with the truth. Um, that I think it is, you know, if there is a God who loves you and wants a relationship with you, why would you not want to hear about that? You know, that the, incredible power and meaning and significance and comfort that can give to your life. I think that uh, when Christianity is properly uh, instructed and cultivated in communities, I think there's a tremendous benefit to participating in that. Um, And I I mean, just, I, I I don't know if proud is the right word, but you know, I, I honestly think the biggest reason why I am a Christian and why I would want other people to be Christians is, you know, it's, it's such a cool tradition to be part of, you know, like we have a long story. We have, you know, and of course, like all, like all peoples, like all movements, uh, it's checkered. Uh, but like, I love participating in Christian art. I love reading novels by Christians. I love reading Christian poetry. Um, so, you know, I think being part of this tradition that has stretched back and provides so much comfort and direction and community, I think that's a great reason to be a Christian. And it's also a great reason to want other people to be Christians. Um, now, how you do that uh, respectfully and how you do that without um, reinscribing colonialist patterns, that's a tough question and that's more than I can answer in this uh, in, in this conversation. But that's also obviously worth looking at. But I just, I, I mean, I can't, we could be here all day if we were going to talk about all the reasons why to be a Christian that don't have anything to do with the afterlife. Like, I think I'd probably be a Christian if if there was no afterlife. Yeah. Honestly. Well, yeah. I think probably yeah, yeah so uh let's see it yeah. says uh laura do you or other scholars that you know of 
think that any of the gospel writers drew on Paul's letters as sources for their gospels. Love uh, UNN Mills' New Testament Review podcast. Killer! We love the New Testament Review podcast. Oh, by the way, uh, the New Testament Review podcast is linked in the description. If you don't know what that is, that's Laura and her co-host Ian. Uh, their podcast yeah. where they discuss New Testament uh, scholarship, and uh, they have a YouTube channel now, and so that's what I have linked in there. But also there on uh, iTunes and everywhere, anywhere else you can listen to a podcast. But anyway, so uh, did Paul? Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So did the gospel authors use Paul at all for uh, a source of their material? Yeah, I think Mark had Paul. Uh, I think it was a very good reason to think that Mark had Paul, or uh, if if he didn't have a copy of the letters on his desk, that he came from a church that was founded by Paul and in the Pauline tradition. Um, so I think there's good reason to think that. What makes you think um, there's, um, I think the fascination with the, the Pauline, uh, so Paul loves the motif of, you know, the weak and the strong and, you know, like God's power made perfect in weakness. And this is such a pervasive mark and theme that I think there's, I, I think there's some kind of a thematic overlap there that Mark more than any other gospel loves the idea that God is manifest in Jesus's weakness and in Jesus's suffering. And that's something that Paul himself is also really interested in. Um, the other part that I think that suggests that it might be more polling is just by comparing it to Matthew. So Matthew is famous as one of the more Juda is a very uh, Judaized gospel that um, Matthew takes Mark and puts in Old Testament citations and puts in respect for Torah, puts in respect for Sabbath. So I think of Mark as Matthew is taking this gospel and making it more uh, Peter centered. You know, Peter has more screen time in it and uh, makes it more Torah observant. You know, what's the other kind of Christianity that was out there that Matthew might have been responding to when he looked at this gospel and tried to make it into something that would be more at home in his own church? Uh, you know, that would be Pauline Christianity. So I think there's probably some connection between Mark and Paul there. So, um, and then by, by, by extension, you know, I think, I think it was, I, I'm sure somebody said this before Doug Campbell, but I was associate this quote with Doug Campbell, that all of the New Testament is a response to Paul, either seconding Paul or speaking or, con- or contradicting and correcting him. I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, very good. Uh, thanks so much to the audience for joining us. That's going to be it uh, for today. But uh, if you uh, want to support Help Me Believe and get access to the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Laura Robinson, and as well as Five More Minutes with all of my guests uh, that I have on, um, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 level, you can get access to all the bonus segments and and good stuff like that. But there's a lot that comes with just donating a dollar a month. So I really appreciate all of our patron supporters and the audience members who Uh, like and share and subscribe and do all that good stuff be sure to do those things as well uh laura thanks so much uh for coming back on i really appreciate it It, it's always fun to have you on i appreciate it i'm always happy to do it you know that so (laughs) good time